is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A bill that would let police impound the vehicles of reckless drivers advances to Governor Tony Evers' desk after the bill passed Wednesday with broad support in the state legislature. The measure is one of a series of bills cracking down on reckless driving and carjacking. The state assembly also passed a bill that would increase the maximum penalties for reckless driving to up to six years in prison and a $4,000 fine if it results in great bodily harm. The Associated Press reports that the bill will be considered next by the state Senate. The Senate, meanwhile, won bipartisan support for a bill that would toughen penalties for carjacking. The measure will be heard next in the Assembly. Republicans have passed a resolution calling for Governor Evers to hold a special election to fill the Secretary of State position. Doug LaFollette announced his resignation from the position last Friday, reports Channel 3000. Evers had already appointed former Treasurer Sarah Godlewski to fill the role, but is facing objections from Republicans in both chambers of the legislature. LaFollette started his 12th term as secretary in January. Critics of Evers regarded the governor's decision to give Godlewski nearly a full term to be a mistake. Democrats argue that by electing Evers, people gave him the power of appointments. The governor does not need a state Senate confirmation for Secretary of State appointees. The Poor People's Campaign rallied inside the state capitol on Wednesday to bring attention to their top issue, expanding Medicaid in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin Examiner reports that the group is is concerned that Medicaid recipients are at risk of being disqualified from the program if their income has risen above the ceiling to qualify. The chairman for the group, Femi Akinmuladen, cited a survey of Wisconsinites showing that about 70% of residents in urban, rural, and suburban populations support Medicaid expansion. The rally was intended to put pressure on the state's Joint Finance Committee, and the group represented over 900 er, the group presented over 900 signatures calling for Medicaid expansion. Lawmakers were also invited to an April 20th forum for affordable health care. The Wisconsin court system came under a cyber attack earlier this week. Court officials said today that users may have experienced slower response times to online services. The Associated Press is reporting that there was no data breach in the attack, nor was there a disruption in court operations. Officials have taken effective countermeasures, but did not outline specifics. Affected users users should contact the clerk of courts in their respective counties. And your morning commute around the Alliance Center could get tied up in a half Nelson on Friday as arrivals for the Wisconsin Folk Style Wrestling Tournament fill the traffic lanes, WKOW reports. Dane County Sheriff's spokesman Elise Schaefer suggests finding an alternate route if you're pinning your hope on a timely arrival. (laughs) And now on to today's top stories. The Lake Monona waterfront along John Nolan Drive is getting a facelift, but what the facelift will look like is still up for debate. And tonight is the final night Madison residents can submit their thoughts on the three final designs for the future of the waterfront. 
WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. With just a few hours left to respond, community feedback for the Lake Monona Waterfront Design Challenge has shattered expectations, with over 1,800 people weighing in on the future of Lake Monona's waterfront. The project has been in the works for years, but back in January, the three final design teams presented their designs for the waterfront. Raj Shukla is the president of the Friends of Lake Monona Waterfront Group, a nonprofit organization dedicated to reimagining the waterfront. Shukla says that the project is much more than just building a new park. You know, our hope is not just to create green space for the community, but to actually bring the community together in a way that it hasn't, hasn't come together. Right now, we have basically a big highway that is cutting people off in our city physically, and we'd like to change that by creating an inviting, safe space for the community to, to come together around. Since the public first got a chance to view the details of the finalists' designs, an online survey has been available for folks to give feedback on which of the three designs they think best fits Madison. The survey doesn't just ask people which of the three designs they like best. It also asks you to rate the three designs on a sliding scale of how they feel the plans reflect and cater to the community. For example, one question asks you to rank the plans on how equitable they are and how likely they appear to allow people of all social, economic, and racial backgrounds to use the space. Another question asks you to rank the designs on how sustainable the designs are and how much they support the existing natural systems in the area. Shukla says that when they first reached out to the designers to create plans for the new space, they put forward specific values that they want to see emerge from the new waterfront. He says that now that they've narrowed their choices down to three, they want to make sure that the community thinks that the designs still stand behind those values. So we're trying to be super consistent, hearing what the community wants, making sure that the design teams were, were creating their designs with an understanding and an integration of what the community wanted, and now having the community evaluate these plans based on what we said we wanted in that exhaustive study. As for the amount of people who have already responded to the survey, Shukla says that he's thrilled that so many people want to make their thoughts known. I'm not surprised, honestly, that so many people have taken the time to put their minds on this project and express their own opinions and help shape this into into a project that the entire community can get behind. The survey will close at midnight tonight. Mike Sturm with the city's Parks Department says that due to the number of responses, it will take them a few days to compile and upload all the data, but it should be available on the project's website later next week. After that, the city's Lake Monona Waterfront Ad Hoc Committee will spend the month of April mulling over the responses and should make a decision on which design will move forward by the end of next month. The committee will then spend the summer ironing out the details of the design before submitting a master plan to the city council in August. You can find the survey and detailed information on the three proposed plans on the City of Madison Parks Division website under the Projects tab. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Local, county, and state referendums are on this spring's ballot. In Dane County, two questions ask for your opinion on gerrymandering and abortion rights. WORT News reporter Faye Parks breaks down the two county-level referendums. Dane County voters can expect to see several referendums on their ballots next month. 
Last week, WORT News reported on the binding referendum for City of Madison residents to stagger Alder elections. The ballot for Dane County voters will also feature two advisory referendums. Both seek to gauge voter interest in gerrymandering and abortion rights, two issues Democrats have presented as at stake in this spring's Supreme Court race. The first referendum, referred to the Common Council in December of last year, is concerned with nonpartisan redistricting. It asks, quote, Should the Wisconsin Constitution be amended to require a nonpartisan system for redistricting legislative and congressional districts in the state? Unquote. Sponsors added this referendum in a bid to address Wisconsin's reputation as an extreme example of gerrymandering. I had a chance to speak with one of the sponsors, Supervisor Alex Shores of District 9. Shores provided WRT listeners with more insight into the referendum. We have one of the most gerrymandered legislatures in the country. And you've heard and seen and likely folks know that the will of the people is often not reflected in their legislature. So we want to make sure that folks have the ability on this ballot to express their views on whether or not they think that uh, folks should have the voters should have a say in selecting their elected officials or if it should be the other way around. The council points to Dane County's 2021 redistricting by way of a nonpartisan commission as a model for statewide change. The commission requested maps from the public, then narrowed the options down to three recommendations to present to the board. I think Dane County really has uh, stepped up in a leadership way and giving us a model to look at at the state level and um, nationally. The second referendum, Right to Privacy, was also referred to the Common Council in December of last year. It asks, quote, Should the Wisconsin legislature adopt an amendment to the Wisconsin Constitution, creating a new right to privacy that would protect rights, such as abortion, same-sex marriage, and interracial marriage, unquote. The referendum was written in response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade in June of 2022, and is preceded by several similar referendums. Residents in Wisconsin are currently subject to a statute that was passed in 1849. Lawmakers at that time ruled out abortion at any stage of pregnancy, without exception, for rape, incest, or health of the patient. A Marquette Law School poll conducted in January of 2023 found that 35% of respondents were in favor of the Dobbs decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, while 64% were opposed. Earlier today, I spoke with Supervisor Patrick Miles of District 34, who expanded on the referendum. It goes beyond decisions around uh, reproductive care, but it, but decisions about con- you know people's use of contraceptives, what they do in in the privacy of their own home, uh, you know, as it relates to same sex uh, relationships or or even interracial inter- uh, relationships that uh, long ago were prohibited by law, and those are all. Uh, things that are at risk when we think about losing the right to privacy in this manner. Both referendums are advisory. That means that they are only included on the ballot in order to assess public opinion. According to Joers, they are a useful tool for lawmakers and voters alike, even though they do not directly affect the law. You know, we always want to make sure that we're doing things that are in the best interests and Um, that the majority of folks want us to do. And so, you know, we've seen before that people are really in favor of 
fair, nonpartisan maps. And so this is what we are doing in this referendum, just giving them another opportunity to say, yes, we still support uh, fair and nonpartisan maps. And we really want our elected officials to take that under consideration, not only in Dane County, but at the state level as well. Miles is in agreement on this front. Well, the only other thing I would say is, you know, I I take these questions seriously, even though they are advisory. I think they do provide good information for our state legislators to inform them and some of the positions they take moving forward. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. District 18 sits on Madison's north side, just north of the Dane County Airport. Two candidates seeking to represent the Sherman and Mendota Hills neighborhoods on the Common Council will appear on the ballot next month. Michelle Ellinger-Lindley is the challenger in that race, and she spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout this week about why she's running to represent District 18. So just to just to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Yeah, I'm Michelle Ellinger-Lindley. I am a longtime Northside resident. I've been here about 18 years. I am, first and foremost, mom to three boys, not boys anymore, they're teenagers, Um, and I'm a small business owner as well. Um, I've been here on the North Side a long time, and I thought I had a really good idea of what North Siders wanted, and then I started doing uh, door knocking, and I've knocked over 3,000 doors by myself and have gotten to have the pleasure of talking to so many residents about what they care about. And that has been just such a cool experience, and I've learned so much more about the North Side. So I'm excited about the possibility of getting to serve uh, this body, and I'm excited about the possibility of getting to do more engaged work with our neighbors here on the North Side of Madison. And now, why did you decide to run for District 18 Alder? Yeah, that sort of ties into what I was just talking about. I naturally sort of just have always gravitated toward community work. Um, I've been active in many organizations over the years and really active in public schooling. And so this was sort of a natural next step for me. I um, had been working on a couple of different projects, um, volunteering that I learned a ton about city government. And, you know, once once you learn all of those things, it's like, you know, it's a very specific skill set. And I thought, well, you know, this is time to put it into practice. And I think I can bring some pretty good, innovative ideas to the North Side, and I'm really looking forward mostly to my collaboration skills, um, applying those to uh, both council and working with North Side residents. And now looking at the, the city of Madison as a whole, what do you think are the most pressing issues facing the city that you would want to address if elected alder? Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're probably hearing much of the same um, with these interviews with, with folks. You know, we've got a major housing crisis right now, and we really need to be creative, thoughtful, and act quickly um, to make sure that we're getting enough housing in place. We are seeing some of some measures being added right now to, to sort of help the city move forward with housing. Um, I don't want to say easier, but removing some of the obstacles that we've seen in the past. And one of the concerns that I have is, is that there are, you know, folks voting against those reforms and, you know, my opponent is one of them. And it's concerning to me because we don't have time. We don't have time to worry about things that are really small 
um, concerns. We really need to be moving forward, focused on housing and, and making sure everyone's housed. Secondarily to that, I mean, it ties into it because you can't have housing without transit and you can't have transit without housing. I, I really feel like this is a, a, an amazing opportunity to do some do some really great work with transit, and I'm sure you'll probably ask about that, so I can stop there. <laughs> and yeah, let's actually continue and pick up right there. Now with Bus Rapid Transit uh, set to take off next year and Network Redesign set to start up later this year, how, how do you feel about those public transit projects? Yeah, I'm, well, the, my, the first word that I can use with that is excited and, and I guess hopeful. Public transit's one of the cornerstones of environmental justice, um, disability rights, um, and it's kind of at the center of, of an opportunity to close socioeconomic disparity. So I believe deeply that we have to expand public transit, including our bus system. So moving forward with the BRT, with the bus rapid transit, we need to be ensuring that it's accessible as possible. So, you know, there there have been some concerns about public transfer, uh, tra- public transit, excuse me, the overhaul that we've just seen, including the natural redesign. I think the Northsiders that I'm hearing at doors are the most concerned about that and losing bus stops. And I will continue to think, you know, these are things we need to reimagine in our public transit system. So I'm... I'm grateful that we are. Um, I want to make sure that we're still um, listening to folks, especially our differently abled and disabled neighbors who are often left out of those conversations. And, you know, my view here, I guess, is, you know, with reduced stops, options, routes, things that have affected the north side, my question about that is, uh, you know, how is, how is the public engaged in that process? And was it transparent? Was it inclusive? Did we get help? from community members um, that work with our differently differently abled and disabled neighbors, did did we get that feedback as we move forward? And so those are really all questions that I would ask, you know, as as an alder and the type of advocacy that I would do to ensure that, you know, the city is living up to its ideals. <laughs> we have really some really great ideals here of inclusivity, transparency, sustainability, Having outstanding questions about the public engagement is is a relevant uh, difference in approach between myself and my opponent. And now another issue that you mentioned earlier was housing here in Madison. Now, what sort of key initiatives would you like to see here in Madison to bring more affordable housing to the entire city? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's really simple. We have to take kind of um, an all-of-the-above approach um, because, you know, traditional um, housing you know, the, the, the private market has, has lacked options historically. And so, you know, we need to be supportive of, of again, innovation. That's the word, right? We're, we're in a rapidly expanding city, so we need folks to be thinking outside the box. So, you know, the way we've always done it isn't, isn't working. What are we going to do next? Specifically, I think um, working with this, the, the transit overlay district is a, is a great idea, um, eliminating the barrier of, you know, for renters with changing the family definition. Those those two things are really key and great moving forward. I also think that we could do more work with uh, offering options of things like co-housing, um, expanding tiny the tiny homes. It's been an amazing endeavor, and I know they're going into phase three with that. So supporting many options for housing is important. We have a lot of unhoused neighbors, and we need to figure this out quickly. We don't have time 
We don't have time. We need to figure it out now and quickly. And now the final issue that I want to dive into here is more handled at the county and federal level, but certainly has a lot of implications both for Madison as a whole and for for uh, your district, District 18. And that is the F-35 fighter jets that are set to touch down at the Truex airfield later this spring. Uh, How how do you feel about those those jets? I I continue to have big concerns. And as it approaches, I I, again, I, I go back to what my neighbors are saying. I'm hearing people that saying that they're they're nervous about it. They're scared about you know the impact that it's going to have on the side of town, um, and also the frustration of of how did how did this happen? How did we get here? You know, it's frustrating to have um, such a big thing happening in your city, and the, and the residents don't have any say over it. My biggest concern moving forward is you know if if they are here. And if there isn't anything that we can do from that level um, to keep them from being here, we have to think about the people that are living the closest to the airport, the people that are living within those 65 decibel and 75 decibel DNL lines and um, how they're most affected. And that's part of the work that I did for two and a half years um, working with the neighborhood group called the Remish Farm Work Group was trying to figure out, you know, what are the best things that can happen um, in terms of housing within those noise contours. And really, you know, there was an environmental justice work group um, a while back um, when Syed Abbas was president of the council that looked at that and looked at whether or not we could have, you know, an over some sort of overlay to, you know, be a little bit more cautious about what the requirements were within those areas. And, since that didn't happen, it's really going to be up to um, alders to be well-informed and holding developers accountable to things like sound mitigation. And it's also going to be really important that we continue to advocate for mindful development around those areas. I, I just think it's, it's really important. It's an important issue that we can't, you know, put to the back of our minds. And very soon, once the judges are here, I think it will be at the forefront. So having all those that are are aware, not just aware, but are well-educated on, you know, the health and safety component of the risks of the F-35s is is really important to me, and I will do everything that I can as Alder to connect with others to keep the public engaged and uh, educated on this topic so that we can sort of minimize those risks to what's a rather large amount of our population here in Madison. I've been talking with Michelle Ellinger Lindley, who is running for election for District 18 Alder. Now that election takes place on April 4th. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. In this week's archival edition of Oddity Box, host D-Star talks with poet, artist, musician, and community leader, James Morgan. Morgan gives us insight about the 20-plus years he spent in prison, and he shares some poetry and wisdom relating to life on the inside and on the outside. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with James Morgan. 
How you doing, James? Man, I'm doing well. It's nice to have you here. So, James, um, you have a very unique story and journey. I know it's a lot to unpack. Let's just start with telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm uh, I'm originally from Saginaw, Michigan, uh, and Saginaw is approximately 100 miles north of Detroit. Uh, so, coming up, uh, I spent a lot of time in in, in those surrounding areas. Uh, I'm quite sure a lot of people have heard of Flint, Michigan, uh, Saginaw, Lansing, uh, all of those areas, you know, uh, father pretty much absent for many years, uh, mom pretty much absent <laughs> for many years. Uh, so my grandparents uh, primarily raised myself and my four siblings. Are you the oldest? I'm the oldest male. Oh, okay. Okay, I'm the oldest male. I have several. <laughs> I have several brothers. You know, uh, my mother gave birth to five children, and then my father had several children. Um, you know, over the course of of many years. Uh, but I also, you know, spent time with a lot of other family members, uh, cousins, uh, uncles, uh, who had a significant impact uh, on my life. Uh, most of my, my uncles were Vietnam veterans, uh, and a lot of them came home, you know, with those heroin addictions uh, and involved in, you know, trafficking of drugs. Uh, you know, early on, it was, it was a lot of what we call street life, you know, being out there hustling, you know, armed robbery. I mean, you name it, you know, we were engaged in a lot of those, those activities were, that were considered our norms, you know. Uh, but, but also let me share something with you that, because even in the midst of all of that, you know, I always, what I wanted to be when I was a kid and I, I'm, I'm coming to this point because I, I asked people this question. So it's fair that I asked it of myself. What did I want to be when I was a kid? What did I want to be when I was 12 or 13 years old? I always wanted to be an artist. Okay. So I, I, I would sketch and draw and do all those other things to you know increase my skill at becoming an artist but within the home environment within the culture of that time that wasn't something that was uh positively promoted so I wasn't it was many 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 years before I got back to my artistic endeavors but uh you know there's a lot of things that uh I enjoy doing you know I enjoy bike riding I enjoy sailing I enjoy fishing uh you know being with people uh, music, 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 you know, music, 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 <laughs> ah, music across, across every genre. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, if I feel like it, I'll listen to a little country. I'll listen to some classical. What feeds my soul is what I gravitate to in any particular situation or circumstance. You spent a significant time in prison. How long did you do in prison? I did 24 and a half uh, years straight. I went into the system with a 55-year sentence, and that was in 1983. Uh, and back then, that sentence was deemed so severe that uh, the expectation was that I would serve more time than a person with a life sentence. Uh, back then, the average lifer served like 13 and a half, you know, and either got a grant of parole or shortly thereafter. Uh, so it was a significant amount of time. Uh, 24 and a half years, very interesting years. You know, I think the thing that I would want to share off the top is that the one thing uh, prison taught me, if it taught me anything, was to never take anything for granted ever again in my life. My freedom, my family, 
my ability to choose, uh, you know, what my journey would look like, what my st- my story would be, if I want to use that term story, uh, because it was a reality. It wasn't just a story. So when are, what were the most influential books that you read while you were in prison? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> What was uh, I, okay? Well, <laughs> what was the book that kicked it off? What was what was the one that lit the fire? I would say one one was the destruction of black civilization. The destruction of black civilization laid out a roadmap for me. Okay, of what I had the potential to become. It also laid out a strategic process whereby I and my people could claim their sovereignty. Okay, that was one book. Another book. Uh, that impacted me and still impacts me today, the crisis of the black middle class. Uh, and of course, you know, the, 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 the key to go to is El Haj Malik El Shabazz, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Okay. Uh, but there were many, uh, you know, the autobiography, uh, Nelson Mandela, okay, on leadership and choices and decision making, uh, even when it's unpopular, you know, being able to have a vision uh, for moving forward, uh, even when you don't have the support for that vision. Uh, one one of the books that, uh, another book uh, that I've, you know, referred for people to uh, deals with uh, white supremacy. Because uh, we often talk about race and racism, but we don't talk about the systems of white supremacist structure. Uh, that set the foundation for what happens in the world. So there's been a lot of books, you know. Uh, while I was incarcerated, I took a women's <laughs> study course because I wanted to see the contribution of our women, you know, uh, those who who aren't as popular uh, but had and still have to this day, you know, some very strong narratives and, and voices uh, that helped to carry me through day to day. So let's speak to some of the work that you do now in the community. You were released in what what year? Well, my last stint with incarceration was in 2015. I actually came home from that 24 and a half years uh, in 2006. In 2006, and then you were revocated in 2015 for rule violation, violation, but you didn't commit any crimes or anything. So can you kind of tell us about that whole journey? Uh, We just had uh, Cheryl Knox, who's a former uh, parole officer for over 30 years, kind of speak to like the roles and responsibilities of the parole officer from her perspective, mm-hmm. right? What do you think about locking people back up, right? Or rule violations without committing a new crime? I could talk about how it's not fair. I could talk about how it should not happen. But the reality is that it does. You know, this this is a system, you know, and we talked a bit that, you know, narrative is the system is broken and, and it's not. And so, you know, when you, when one is engaging with, you know, probation agents, you know, parole agents, what I share with individuals is build a relationship. And I know how difficult that is because during my period of incarceration, I never heard anything positive right, <laughs> about right. a single parole or probation agent. 
That was D. Star, host of the Oddity Box podcast, talking with poet and community leader James Morgan. You can hear their full conversation on the Oddity Box podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The House Always Wins, Carpentry Savants, Allie and John, share their journeys into the building trades and give advice on how you can begin your own construction trade journey. I call it housework. Cause it's light work. What you, what you done here? I'ma throw shapes, filling the base till my feet hurt. Hey! I call it housework. Hi there, I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, a place where you can learn cool stuff about your house. You know, Allie, I'm thinking we should talk a little bit about what we do for a living. And then uh, let's share some, maybe some tips for getting into the construction trade if there's some interest. That sounds great. I started my journey as a chemist. Oh my God, wait, wait, wait. Were you like pouring things from one beaker to another? No, uh, sadly, I was one of those those chemists that read reports. Oh God. Yeah, it was brutal. It was around 1992 and I just talked my way into a construction job here in Madison. What drove your interest? What made you go, hey, I want to try this? You know, I, I had a friend who kind of followed a really similar uh, route. She was a... Uh, uh, had a degree in physics Ooh. and ended up working on a, a residential framing crew. And so I just was like, oh, I think I might might try that. I knew I was kind of dissatisfied with where I was at. Mm. And so the way I went about things by not getting any formal training, it took me years to learn the kinds of things that, that right now, as a teacher, I teach those students, you know, in nine months. Uh, I went into I went to a school for furniture and cabinet making, um, and then around 2005, I started working at Madison College, and I, I've been teaching carpentry full time since then, and and that's what brings me to my my present day. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of experience. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm convinced. Take my money. You know what you're talking about. So, what about me? Well, I'll jump in here. My path was uh, I grew up in a family, a farm family. But I came to go to Madison to go to college, started in theater, but then ended up in the construction uh, administration program, graduated from that. But uh, I went into the Peace Corps, built low-income housing in North Africa, came back and went to work for a remodeling company and uh, spent 15 years there. And then I took the teaching job uh, at Madison College as well, and that's been a blast. So, Ali, what if someone has that same cubicle farm job, hates it? and yearns to work with their hands and become like us. What is out there for them? Well, um, the fact is there is a ton of opportunity out there right now. Uh, the construction trades are hiring like crazy because, because frankly, people like us, we're, we're li- a, a late boomer and an early Gen Xer. I'm not going to say who's who. Right. Uh, and that, that, are we old? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm saying we're getting older. And a lot of, of people who have been in the trades are retiring, and that creates a lot of opportunity for, for new people to come in. If you're interested and you wanted to get into carpentry, any of those, there's also, there's remodeling, which is working on old homes, which is what you and I both did. Um, there's also new home construction, building the new home stocks. Commercial construction, our coworker Sandy worked commercial for 30 some years. She's building all the big buildings, uh, the, you know, the campus buildings, the, all the really cool big buildings. Being a part of that can be fun. A lot of different ways you can go. Yeah, absolutely. And these jobs in general, they pay really well. 
They can be extremely rewarding. So you can earn a, a family supporting wage, depending on how you go about it. You can you can learn while on the job. That's that's basically the the premise of an apprenticeship, and you'll you'll learn a trade without getting into any college debt. I think one of the things that a lot of that speaks to a lot of us in the trades is the ability to look at the end of the day and see what you've accomplished. Yeah, I love that. That's, I mean, that's so huge. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had days where I'm like, wow, what have I done today? Um, <laughs> it's but, true. But a lot of times you do get to see like real like accomplishment and and you can point it out to somebody. And, and you know, frankly, that's a pretty big improvement over reading reports. Reports for yeah. the, the EPA for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can start your own business. So yeah. that really speaks to to people who, who want to be their own boss. There's a lot of companies out there with just two, three people. And, and then the other is that there's a fair bit of job security. It's not any anytime soon that, that your job as a carpenter is going to be outsourced. What are the things to people be aware of? Well, it is a physical job. And that is one of the things people are like, oh my God, it's a physical job. You'll kill your body. Not necessarily true. You will use your body as well as your mind to accomplish things. You know, you'll be climbing ladders, you'll be twisting and turning and lifting and and doing all sorts of things you probably won't do in your cubicle. Uh, there's a greater likelihood that you, you might hurt yourself, but if you're careful and if you're thoughtful, you'll be all right. You do have to learn to take care of yourself. And you know, as far as the physicality goes, if you do take good care of yourself, if you stretch, do yoga, things like that, you really can keep your body in shape. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, there's there's physical stresses from sitting at a at a desk all day too. Right. So it's just different for sure. You make it a paper cut. Yeah. Well, and there's other ones too. To be fair, that's true. Um, I I do have to speak about one thing that's that's very real, which is that the trades have not always been super welcoming of women or people of color. But it is starting to shift, and and I think partly it's shifting because society's attitudes are shifting about who does what kind of work, and partly because the companies, I've just seen the writing on the wall, the demographics do not favor just counting on so-and-so's nephew and so-and-so's little brother to, to get into the industry. There's just a lack of white nephews out there nowadays. Yeah, the white nephews, or the farm boys, right? A lot of the folks are always looking exactly. for the, the farm boys, and they are a, they're a dodo bird of a breed, that's for sure. Yeah, so, you know, it's you and I, we've trained dozens, maybe 100 women, people of color to be to be carpenters, mm -hmm. and we're still seeing that it's harder for them to find employment, and that when some of them have found employment, they've been harassed, they've been excluded, um, they just feel like people have been downright hostile to their presence. And and I know that if you're that worker who's getting harassed, it's it can be really challenging to know what to do. Some people can navigate their way by deciding we're only going to pick certain battles. You're going to develop a thick skin. Maybe you give back as, as as much as you take. You know, there's a lot of different ways of dealing with that. And uh, but unfortunately for some people, it's just it's unacceptable. They move on. They go on to another company and hopefully that's a better situation. And some people just leave the trades and that is just a loss all around. But I guess I'd say, you know, all that notwithstanding, and I've, I've had my, my share of battles over this, this 30 years, I still come away. Like I, when people ask me what I do, I usually start with carpenter and follow with teacher um, mm -hmm. because I so identify myself as, as a carpenter because I've loved 
that work. And so if you're interested, if, if this feels like this, this speaks to you, what do you do to get involved? Well, you could come and take our program at Madison College, construction and remodeling program. Um, if you're also interested in going into electrical or plumbing, the apprenticeship is definitely an option, both union and non-union. You get paid to learn. You get paid to be on a job site and then you get paid to go to school as well. Um, I think we should leave it there for today. What do you think about that? I think uh, we've got a great, great gig here going on. So I agree. All right. Well, if you're out there and you have a home improvement or home remodeling or carpentry question, why don't you send us an email at thehousealwayswins at w-o-r-t-f-m dot o-r-g. Earlier this month, disability rights activist Judy Human passed away at the age of 75. Human has active ad- advocated for disability rights since the 1970s and has had a lifelong mission of advancing issues of equality for people with disabilities. On last Friday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Andy Moore spoke with Michael Moore with the McBurney Disability Resource Center at UW-Madison to look back at Human's accomplishments. Now, this is just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found on the archives at wortfm.org. Would it be an exaggeration to say that humans work help pave the way for many places like the McBurney Center to do business? I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. I think, uh, you know, I, she, her, her, her legacy is profound. She, she reached out at a time when, you know, disability rights really wasn't a thing. And and was a, was a tremendous advocate. First of all, for herself, as you noted in her in her lawsuit against the uh, New York Board of Education, but that gained some traction, and she continued that advocacy work not only on behalf of herself but many others of us who who have disabilities, and really led to things like the enactment of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, a, 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 a landmark piece of legislation, and then ultimately the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, to be fair. The McBurney Center did exist uh, before those leg- pieces hmm. of legislation were enacted. Hmm. Uh, so UW has a, a history of being, you know, uh, forward-thinking for sure. Um, however, many other mm-hmm. campuses have followed suit, and many other uh, areas of, of disability rights and um, encouraging access uh, certainly have sprung up in you know, uh, in the wake of, of a lot of her, her actions. I want to get to um, a couple of the pieces of legislation of which you speak in, in, in a few minutes, but um, the fact that many people have never heard of Judy Human speaks a little bit about the public's lack of knowledge about disability rights movement and disability in, in general, does it not? Um, I agree. It's, it's, it's interesting uh, that you bring that up. I would say that it's, it's a pretty spectacular story. Uh, the the great lengths that these people went through in the late '60s and in, in into the '70s to advocate for and and really establish these rights. Some profound, uh, profoundly effective um, protests and demonstrations uh, in Washington, in San Francisco, and yet they're not taught in schools. In fact, I didn't. You know, I've I've been paralyzed since high school, and I didn't learn about them until I went back to school in the in 2014 to, to pursue a rehabilitation counseling degree, um, and learned a bit about the history of of this movement. Um, and it was it's a little disappointing to me that I didn't know about you know all these actions uh, until until well later in my life. 
despite having lived so long with a disability. This might be somewhat of an ageist question, but um, what about students you work with as, as they, you know, uh, come into your office? Have those have, have today's students heard of Judy Human and her work? You know, that's a good question. I mean, some of the students I work with indeed have and are strong advocates and indeed have recently pushed for, you know, ad- ad- advancing uh, disability awareness and uh, culture even at UW and have requested and even been granted uh, this past year a Disability Cultural Center. So there are some students who are uh, well aware of her and, you know, the, the others in this movement. But I think there are plenty of us and plenty of our students who are not aware of that. And so so it's, I think it's a mixed bag, but I think it's becoming more and more aware. She has, you know, remained uh, a she remained a strong advocate up until her death. She indeed had an event scheduled with some of our students for like next month. Is that uh, right? So she rem- oh my! Yeah, she remained she remained active huh. uh, through you know, and uh, at the age of seventy five, was still doing this work uh, with with great energy. So some of our students absolutely aware of her, working with her. Mm-hmm. We were scheduled to have a fireside chat with her. Um, just in the coming weeks. Wow. Unfortunately, wow. that, of course, wouldn't be happening. Wow. To help our listeners kind of understand the timeline of these issues, the timeline of, of her contributions, if you would, do your best to describe the disability rights landscape prior to Judy Human. What was it like? Well, prior to Judy's actions, I mean, it, it, I mean, we could go back a long period of time and understand that folks with disabilities have long been sort of ostracized, right, and considered less than or going going way back to, to you know, hundreds of years ago, you know, cursed, right? Um, and moving away from that into the early 1900s and sort of post-World War One, post-World War Two, you know, we, we, we see governments reacting to veterans coming back with disabilities and trying to, you know, create programs that would help help those folks, you know, achieve work and be able to do so with accommodation. But as far as rights go, definitely not a thing until until Judy and other activists showed up in the 60s. Now, that said, you know, there were certainly people who would be uh, institutionalized uh, just because of their disability status and definitely ostracized from uh, from life. But yeah, we don't we don't see active, you know, protections uh, for rights and equality until you know, until these act- activities in, in the 60s and 70s. Some listeners uh, may know Judy from her appearances in the documentary film Crip Camp. Talk about that film and its significance and, and, and her role in it. Sure. So Crip Camp is a documentary <laughs> film about Judy and a number of ad- other advocates who met at a camp in, uh, I believe, 1971, early 70s, a camp called Camp Gen Ed, which was a camp, you know, for like for teenagers uh, with disabilities in where New was York. It? Uh, I believe in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't tell you where in New York, but and these, you know, these these are folks with disabilities who are used to not being able to participate, not seeing themselves as equals, and not being able to do a lot of the things they see their peers doing. And they they meet at this camp and experience sort of what it's like to be just equals with everybody there, doing everything that's available and not being seen as different. And the idea comes out of it that this should be how it always is in society, and we need to advocate for that. And then you then will get a nice documentary or, you know, history of the disability rights movement and how uh, folks like Judy and others uh, in in these groups um, advocated for 
you know, the enactment of uh, the Rehab Act of 73 and then it's the promulgation of its rules, uh, which didn't happen for another four or five years, unfortunately. Um, and then ultimately, yeah, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Michael Moore, thank you for joining us on the Friday Buzz on this important topic. My pleasure. Thank, thanks so much for having me, Andy. Okay, thank you. Have a great weekend. You Michael do. Moore is an access counselor at the McBurney Disability Resource Center at UW-Madison. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter this evening was Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, John Stephanie, and Ali Barini, Andy Moore, and the 8 o'clock buzz. Super Dave Lorenz engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhow produced this newscast, and Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to subscribe to the WORT Local News as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Stay tuned and good night.